We're looking this summer at the early chapters of John's gospel, where we see the person and ministry of Jesus exceed the expectations of God's people, challenge them, but, but meet their deepest needs. The first half of John's gospel that we've been focusing on is filled with signs, miracles designed, though, to point not just to the event themselves, but to point us to who Jesus is, to explain to us why he came. Now, the first of the miracles that we read this morning, and we'll see two big miracles, the first is the only miracle that's announced in all four Gospels. There are some miracles that are contained in in one or two or even three of the Gospels. This is the only miracle that all four Gospel writers report to us. So listen as I read. This is the Gospel of John, chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 1 through 21. John, chapter 6. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough to care for each of them, for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Listen as I read, as I, as I, or I, let me invite you now to bow your heads as I pray. Father, we give you praise for the ministry of Jesus, our Savior. Lord, I ask that as we have read your word that that as we listen to it preached, that we would hear it as your truth. Lord, that, that your spirit would be active to, to confront us in our sin, to expose our weaknesses and failures, but more than that, to point us to the hope of Jesus, our Savior. Lord, we give you praise for his ministry. For his purpose, we declare him to be king 
And we ask that, that he would take control of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the growing boys at my house is always ready for his next meal. I mean, as soon as the current meal finishes, he wants to know, as soon as lunch is done, what's for dinner? Now, he's grateful for the meals that are provided, but he's always looking ahead to what comes next. On the hillside of Galilee, the disciples find themselves with a large crowd that had not planned ahead. They did not ask that simple question, hey, what's for lunch? We see Jesus now on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. We last left him when he was in Jerusalem. He's traveled up back to Galilee, the place where he grew up here in the the northern part of Israel. He travels now to the far side, the eastern side of the sea, there to get away from the crowds that had gathered around him in Capernaum. But the crowds followed Jesus. Jesus, even up on the mountainside with his disciples, is overwhelmed by the crowd. And why have they come? Look at, look at verse 2. A large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. They see the miracles, and so they come following the miracle worker. They are looking at the signs and seeing that they point to Jesus, and so they follow Jesus where he goes. Now, Jesus sees the crowds, and, and, and look at the question that he asks Philip. I mean, in some sense, I feel bad for Philip. Like, what kind of answer are you supposed to give in this scenario? When Jesus tests him by asking him in verse 5, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Uh, Jesus I think the answer is nowhere, because there's nowhere we could buy bread. And even if there was a somewhere, we don't have any money to buy bread. Even if we had 200 denarii between us, if the 12 of us had saved up eight months' worth of our wages, that, I mean, that's going to make barely a dent, because the passage tells us there are 5,000 men there, which means there are probably 20,000 people. This is an enormous crowd that is gathered to listen to Jesus. Now, maybe Philip should have answered, Lord, there's nowhere to buy bread, and so we need a miracle from you. I mean, maybe he should have responded with that that kind of faith, but, but Jesus doesn't reprimand him. So perhaps the test here is not merely a test for Philip, it's a test for us, the readers, to understand what, what's going to happen, because we're told that, well, Jesus knows exactly what he's going to do. Now, Andrew's response is, is almost even sillier. At least Philip was kind of cornered by Jesus, asked directly, where, would we, where can we get food to feed everyone? But Andrew decides to, to kind of chime in. Andrew, who is Simon Peter's brother, in verse 8 says, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Oh, great. How in the world is that going to help us? You have a a child here who has five barley loaves, so probably really small little loaves of bread cooked on a a skillet, and two fish, and and the word there probably implies that they're really small fish. You have a little boy's lunch, and you're going to feed 20,000 people with this. 
And yet, that's exactly what Jesus is going to do. In verse 10, he just says, have the people sit down. And John gives us another one of those details. Now, there was much grass in the place. Now, if you've traveled to this part of the world, there is only a very short window of time during the year after the rains have come when you could actually say that. But if you had stood there on that mountainside with Jesus and you remember it in your mind of, oh, it's covered in green grass, which is the word that's used. It's not dried grass, it's green grass. Well, then you're just recounting for us what he saw. He doesn't have to go back and and check the dates and, oh, the Passover, it's in the spring, that's when the rains would be there, it would be green, and so let me add that detail in to convince everybody that this is true. No, it's just like we saw a few chapters ago. There are five colonnades around the pool. It's just a, a throwaway detail, but a reminder to us that the one who tells us about this stood and watched this miracle take place. Because actually, the miracle itself isn't really described. It's not explained how it happens. Do people keep reaching into the basket and it just keeps working? Or do they break off a piece of bread and pass it down and the bread never gets any smaller? It's never explained to us how it works. It's just clear that Jesus, when he gives thanks to God, distributes to those who are there. And look at verse 11. He gives them the bread, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill... He told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. Not only can Jesus feed the crowds that are here, but there are leftovers. I mean, in some sense, the little boy whose meal gets commandeered for this great miracle is now left with more than he started with. I mean, he can go home with enough leftovers to make up for what he had given. Perhaps a reminder to us that when God calls us to generosity, He's the God who can meet our own needs even as we give to others. That often in giving, we don't find that we have less. We find that God has met our needs as we meet the needs of those who need help. Now, on the same day, the disciples witness another miracle. It follows that evening. The disciples are waiting for Jesus, who is withdrawn again by himself who has escaped from the crowds, and we're told when evening came, the disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the lake. It was now dark. So they're heading back toward home. It's probably a journey of five miles across the sea. It it, it seems as if they probably waited as long as was possible for Jesus. But likely he'd given them some instructions of, I'm going to be with my father, I'm going to go off to pray, and so you can head back and I'll meet you there. And yet these men, as they row across the sea, because the the wind is too too great, the the storm is too rough for them, they they are now in real danger. And this is a part of the world as the the storms kind of funnel down into these deep valleys and ravines, the, the big storms can come up on, because remember, some of these men are fishermen, like they've spent their whole lives on this lake, and yet in darkness, they're overtaken by a storm they could not see coming. And so they're now about three or three and a half miles from the, the, the shore as they've been rowing. And, and look at verse 19. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. In the midst of the storm, they see a figure walking toward them. Someone in the storm now standing next to them. This is not likely to be good news. Whatever is happening, 
a hallucination in their minds, a, a ghost appearing to them, some sort of, some sort of you know, angelic messenger, they're afraid. And yet, look at what Jesus does. Jesus said to them in verse 20, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they had been going. Now, it's possible that's a third miracle, this kind of miraculous transportation, or it could just be the description of, well, Jesus just walked alongside the boat, and we were, really, we were almost there. And so by the time he stepped into the boat, oh, well, look, here we are. That Jesus didn't just walk halfway across the lake and then get in the boat and ride the other half, that, that really Jesus ended up walking, really, the whole way across the lake. But the miracles are clear. Five little loaves of barley bread and two small fish to feed 20,000. The Savior who can walk across a raging sea, and the other Gospels tell us that with a word, he silenced the sea. The Savior whose very presence calms the fears of his disciples. Now, these are miraculous stories that you've heard before. You weren't surprised that, wait, they didn't go away hungry? Jesus didn't just send them all like, hey, sorry, it's getting late. It's time for you guys to go. Go figure out your own lunch. No, you knew what was coming. Jesus walking on water sounds like, mm hmm, yep, that's kind of what Jesus does. I mean, he just walks on water. To, to us, the miracles, if we've read the Gospels before, sound almost so familiar that, that we miss the miraculous. That's not something that anyone else could do. No one else has the power to feed the multitudes with almost nothing. No one else has the power to, to feed his people with a bread that we'll see in the rest of the chapter next week is a bread that comes from heaven. No one else has the power to silence a storm, not these fishermen who have spent their lives on this lake who couldn't predict the storm and get caught in it in the darkness of night, except Jesus. Jesus who can control the the powers of gravity to walk across water. And yet, we reduce these to little, little cutout stories that you see on the flannel graphs in Sunday school. Okay, well, that's how I saw them as a kid. Maybe we don't use enough flannel graph here. That we just reduce the stories to, oh, that's sweet. That's kind of cute. I mean, that's fun. Jesus is, is making clear, these signs tell us he is the king of the universe. The king with power and authority, when, when, when Philip says, 200, 200 denarii, like most of a, a year's worth of, of a salary wouldn't, wouldn't be enough here. He's operating just on the, the, the natural, on the ordinary. Like what could we as disciples, if the 12 of us put our minds together, if we gave all our resources, what could we accomplish? Well, we couldn't do this. Oh, but Jesus can. With a simple word of thanks, to God in heaven, he breaks bread and he distributes fish and it never runs out. Jesus doesn't need them to wait for him. I mean, you can imagine some of them saying, but Jesus, how are you going to get back to Capernaum? It's a really long walk to go around the lake. It'll be so much, I mean, just, just get in the boat with us now. It'll be so much easier than, we, we don't have to worry about sending somebody back for you in a couple of days if we don't see you. We don't have to go out looking for you. Just come in the boat now. He doesn't need a boat. 
He's the king of the universe. The one who, who holds not just the, the Sea of Tiberias, and, and, and even that name now given to us to, to let people who lived in other parts of the world know what lake you're talking about. I mean, it's just a big lake. But Tiberias was a city founded just, just probably a decade before, named after the emperor. I mean, so this is to show forth the power of the empire so that the whole lake takes on the name of that one little city. The Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias, was made by Jesus. He's the one who can hold the, the oceans in the palm of his hand. I mean, like, I don't know how much water you can hold in the palm of your hand, like before it slips through your fingers. I mean, like, it's like a thimbleful. That's what the oceans are like to Jesus. And yet, yet the, the crowds see the miracle and they want to make Jesus a king. They want to force him to be king so that they can get what they want from him. Now he'll explain to them, you, you only do this because your stomachs are full. You haven't actually thought through what you're asking. And so Jesus understands this. Verse 15 says, Perceiving then that the crowds were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The crowds gathered say, You be our king. We count off the men because, well, that's how you'd count off an army. There are 5,000 potential soldiers here. We could do a lot of damage. I mean, Rome's tentacles don't stretch all that, that deeply into Galilee. And probably if we gained this, this area, then we could even probably take Judea. We could take Jerusalem. We could overthrow the shackles of the evil empire. We could get rid of Tiberias. We could get rid of, of any remnant that they had any power here. Jesus, now is the moment. Let's do this. And yet they're seeing Jesus' power as if it's something they could control. As if it's something that, that was here on display merely to make them happy. And so it's easy for us to sort of shake our heads and think, oh, these, these foolish crowds. Or these disciples who are afraid when they've just witnessed a miracle and they're afraid that, that Jesus can't meet their needs. And yet I think, sadly, we often react the same way. We want Jesus to be king as long as he's the kind of king who does what I tell him to do. As long as he's a puppet king who does my bidding for me. See, sometimes we believe in his power, but we aim it toward our own goals. We want him for our political advantage. He could bring back some Christian values for us. But we're more concerned with people voting the way we want them to vote than we are with our neighbors meeting the Savior. Or sometimes we, we doubt his power. I mean, we want him in our personal lives, sort of as our own little personal guru to kind of get us through our, our days and weeks. But we kind of doubt that his authority is big enough to really make any change. I mean, we're willing to let him into certain areas of our lives, but there's some things that, well, I should stay in charge of that, Jesus, because I'm not sure how you'd handle this. You'd I mean, I've spent a lot of time getting this ready and organized. It's just the way I want it. 
you're just going to come in and make a mess. I mean, it was 12 basketfuls of, of leftovers they had to clean up. I mean, he made a huge mess at this meal. See, we're glad to be known as Christians on Sundays, but once we're back at school, once we're back at work, well, we feel he's really not big enough to follow. He doesn't really expect me to believe that, does he? Sometimes I fear that we doubt his goodness. We think his demands, his moral expectations are too much for us. His rules are too old-fashioned. He's out of touch. I mean, I'll let Jesus be king as long as I can do what I want. Well, that's no king at all. And the announcement here in John chapter 6 threatens to upturn, overturn our selfish desires. The miracles themselves point to the authority and power and divinity of Jesus. The one who stands here and says to them, it is I. A simple phrase in the Greek that can be used in John's gospel to just say, oh, it's me. Hey, you know me, it's me, Jesus. It's also a phrase that, that's used to translate the very name of God in the Old Testament. I am who I am. He's the one who can stand before them and say, don't worry, I am. And the storms are silenced. He's the one who can, who can break bread to feed the thousands. So the miracles force us to reckon with who Jesus is. And then John gives us, gives us explanations in here to show that to us. First, when the people want to make Jesus king, what do they say? Look at verse 14. The people saw the sign, and they decide, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. They're quoting the, the ministry of Moses. In Deuteronomy 18, God promised through Moses, Moses, the one chosen by God to lead his people out of slavery, who through Moses worked miraculous signs so that they would see the power of God, who to Moses revealed to him that I am who I am, Moses then tells the people, after, they've, after they have, have, have left Egypt, after they've wandered in the wilderness, as they, as they enter the promised land, in Deuteronomy 18, he tells them, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired your God at Horeb on the day of assembly. He, Moses makes the, the promise, another prophet like me, one who has the authority to lead, one who does the redemptive work of rescue, God will send another prophet, a prophet with a capital P, prophet. And the people realize, wait, this is the moment. They're actually understanding, it, it's true. Jesus is the, the prophet whom Moses told us was coming. But again, they've misunderstood what the prophet's purpose was. But John gives us reminders Verse 4 gave us the, the context. Look back at verse 4 of John chapter 6. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. John's gospel kind of walks us through the ministry of Jesus by, by recounting three Passover feasts. 
For the other two, the first and the third, this is the second. For the first and the third, Jesus is in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. It's here. Now, now it seems like it's a, it's a, a throwaway detail. But remember, we, we saw previously that if John just tells us that this, this was just a feast, if he doesn't tell us which feast, he, he just is trying to set the, the, the context. If he tells us the specific feast, it's because he wants us to think, wait, what was that feast about? The Passover was when the God, through Moses, gave the tenth sign in Egypt of God's power. What was the sign? That God was going to destroy the firstborn from among the Egyptians. And how would God's people be rescued? A lamb was to be slaughtered in the place of the firstborn. The blood painted on the, the doorways of the house so that the angel of death would pass over that house. An annual reminder that God is a rescuing God. It's not a throwaway detail for us in John 6. It's a reminder that the, the very thing that Moses started, the miracles that you saw are, are coming true. It, it's connected there to the, the, the words that are quoted from Moses. The prophet is here. A new exodus has begun. You won't just be rescued from slavery in Egypt, but from slavery to your sins, from death itself, because the prophet is here. The new Moses, the one greater than Moses, is here. The true Redeemer is here, and yet they've misunderstood his ministry because they think he's a king who can conquer their physical enemies, their military enemies, a king who can get them to, to stop paying taxes that, that flow into the coffers of Rome, a king who will do what they expect him to do. Now, there's, a, there's another detail here and th that gives us a, a reminder of why Jesus came. Look back at verse 12 as we're, as we're told about the, the leftovers. When the people had eaten their fill, this is verse 12, Jesus told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. Now, it could be. It's possible that this is John just remembering, well, that's, that's what Jesus said. But, but John, I think, has, has constructed this narrative to remind us who Jesus is. The only other time that we have heard that word, the lost, in John's gospel is, well, it's actually in the most famous verse in John's gospel. In John chapter 3, we hear the announcement you know this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, should not be lost, but have eternal life. It might be that John wants us to remember the purpose for which Jesus came. But that's why he uses this phrase, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. I mean, some, some commentators see, well, how many baskets were there? There were 12. 12 seems like an important number in the Bible. It's the number of disciples. It's the number of, of the, the, the tribes of Israel. God is providing for his people. Even the leftovers are enough to feed the people of God. And, and maybe, that's, maybe that's true. I mean, maybe that's, it wasn't accidental. But I don't think this detail is accidental. And surely the redemptive ministry of Jesus is meant to be highlighted in this passage. Jesus is the king, not the king who can be forced into our expectations, not a king who can be manipulated to do what we want him to do. 
He's a king who overthrows the shackles of our sin through his death. God gave his only son so that we might have eternal life, that we might not be lost. He is the king who blesses us with heavenly food, the king who gives us eternal life through his resurrection, the king who feeds the crowds, the king with power over all. Most graduation speakers don't leave a lasting impression. I mean, you, there's so many names that still have to be read. We just got to get on with this. But, but my seminary graduation speaker shared a story from his missionary experience that stuck with me. John Bechtel and his wife Donna arrived as missionaries in Hong Kong in 1966 to work with students, to work with children and youth. At the time, Hong Kong had a population of about 4 million people. It's much bigger today. But half of that population, 2 million of the residents of Hong Kong were under the age of 18. So even government officials were wrestling with what, what it would look like to provide resources for kids. And so John tells the government official, I can help. I have a dream to build a youth camp here, but I don't have any land. Would you be willing to give me some land? And, and they say, well, we have a 153-acre island, Sunshine Island. We can give it to you, but it's going to need a pier so that you can get people to and from it. So before we can give it to you, you're going to have to, to, to commit to installing the pier, and that's going to cost $40,000. Pastor Bechtel announces to his supporters back home, we have the opportunity of a lifetime. We only need to raise $40,000, and we will have this enormous camp to meet the needs of, of kids in Hong Kong, that they'll hear the gospel. But he says no money arrived. So John returns to the government and says, well, we don't have the money to install the pier. Is there, is there another option? Maybe something like on a beach that, would, that we don't have to like, take a boat across to, but something more, more accessible. And they say, well, well yes, we, we have uh, seven acres, Castle Peak Beach, but it's, it needs a dormitory. And that dormitory is going to cost $40,000. Well, John realizes, I I think that's going to be the magic number, and I can't raise it. So he continues to pray. And then his field chairman calls and tells him, there's another ministry in Hong Kong closing an orphanage, and they would like to give the, the land, they'd like to sell this property to another Christian ministry. So he's excited. Okay, it's not the government that's giving it to me, it's another Christian organization. And, and so he, he talks to, to one of the leaders there, and he says, well, we, we just completed $1 million worth of construction, and so we can't just give it to you, but we can sell it to you for only $240,000. Now, at this point, John is feeling helpless. His dream of building the camp seems dead. But just a few days later, an influential businessman arrives, somebody who's been a supporter of, of his ministry, and, and, and he says, John, this is the opportunity of a lifetime. Don't worry about a thing. I'll go back to the U.S. I will raise all of the money for you. We will buy this camp. Three months later, the potential donor sends him a letter. Dear John. Uh-oh. It's never good to receive a Dear John letter. Dear John, oh, how I hate to write this letter. I was not able to raise any money for you. there was a P.S. at the bottom. 
Enclosed, please find a letter from a 14-year-old girl named Belinda. Her letter read, Dear Mr. Bechtel, here's my ice cream money for the next two weeks. Please use this one dollar to buy the camp. Instead of discouragement, John's now excited. God is going to buy this camp. He says, that's all I needed to hear. I took the letter to our chairman and we went to see the sellers. He said to them, we have the money. You do. Here, read this letter. He said the seller didn't know whether to laugh at him or cry. One dollar is not $240,000. A few weeks later, they received the call. The camp is yours. The board voted to sell you the camp for one dollar. John explains, he says, four and a half acres, dormitories for 350 kids, an auditorium that seats 450, staff housing for as many as we need, an athletic field, everything we'd ever want. Sundo camp, proclaim the gospel camp, built for a dollar. Three million children have attended that camp. It was a fundraiser's failure and a little girl's gift that showed forth the king's power. Father in heaven, I ask that you would give us faith to believe that Jesus is the king. Where we are tempted to take control of our lives, Lord, I pray that you would confront us in our failures. Father, where we doubt your goodness and love, we would see the grace of Jesus. Father, for those that that listen to your word today, without faith in, in Jesus as the Savior, as the King, as our rescuer and redeemer, I pray that they would see your great power on display in the miracles of your word, on display on the cross of our Savior, and in his resurrection. Lord, that this gospel would transform us. Lord, that we as a church would would seek to accomplish things that are much too big for us to do. Things that would require you to work miraculously. And so Lord, let us see those miracles even this morning as you draw believers to yourself, as you shape us for the work of your kingdom. We come praying in Jesus' name. Amen.